Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Amen. Is that better? Rance has a little laser pointer back there, and he's been shooting me with it at various times, and so I thought he was shooting me, and it threw me off for just a minute. On Easter, Rance, on Easter. Anywho, so just a way to touch up, First Peter written by the Apostle Peter to all of these churches that have been scattered across uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, you've got, uh, they're about to face this wave of suffering. They're already facing some suffering. They're already facing a little bit of people um, socially persecuting them, right? I don't want my kids hanging out with your kids, but there's a wave that's going to come from Rome of more suffering. And so Peter is telling this group of believers, here's how you need to live in the midst of all of this stuff that's about to take place. And so you have, uh, Peter starts with this, this theology and this doctrine that he lays this foundation of beliefs for these Christians. He talks about how Christ has to be your living hope and how you need to have a holy living and how that living hope and that holy living go together and Christ is the living stone that produces these holy people. And then from this theology, Peter branches out and he starts talking about how we do gospel-centered works, right? Works do not save us. You will not find that in the Bible. But those who are believers do good works. And so we see this idea of submission, where we, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, will give up our rights if it means that other people get to hear the gospel. That as Christians, we understand our careers, our jobs, the things that we do to earn a living or wages, that those are the Lord's, and that we will surrender those things, we will submit under those things if it means that people can hear the gospel. And even within our marriages that we'll submit to our spouses if it means that our spouse might be an unbeliever who comes to hear the Lord or other people will see the Lord through that. Then Peter talks about gospel-central living. He talks about how suffering is a really interesting way that God uses our lives, that he's going to send us through times that are hard, that life's not going to be easy, it's not just going to be great rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns all the time, that there's going to be struggles and it's going to be difficult. But because of those struggles, because life is difficult, we can lean into the gospel and we can show the gospel to more people. That the end is coming. That this doesn't go on forever and that we can live with that in mind. 
And they transition to these gospel-centered churches where you have pastors who have their sheep, their, their flock that they take care of as under-shepherds. You have a congregation who cares for one another, who commits to one another, and all of this has to be done in humility. And so now we finish up First Peter, and, and we get to what I think is the gospel-centered motivation for the whole letter. I'm not a mechanic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's an old uh, old deacon at First Baptist Panhandle kind of took me under his wings. Dwayne Smith's his name. We called him the candy man because he always gave us candy after church. Uh, but he would always say, I can't fix much, but I can break just about anything. And I have adopted that as my mechanic motto in life. I can't fix my vehicle, but I can break it and make other people frustrated when they try to fix it. But I know enough to know what Peter's done is he's given us essentially a vehicle that we can ride in. But if we don't put the right type of fuel, if we don't put the right type of gas in the vehicle, then it's not going to go anywhere and it won't do us much good. Or maybe we can think of it as our phones. We have our cell phones in our pockets, hopefully on silent. Uh, But your phone doesn't do you much good if the battery's dead. That there has to have some source in there. There has to be something that's going to revive us and keep us going. And so as we get to this last section for 1 Peter, Peter spends this short tiny few verses giving us the gas, giving us the power that we're going to live this letter out in. So let's read 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 verses 12 through the end. Through you, uh, through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather together this morning, that we get to walk through your text, God, that we get to finish up First Peter, which I pray has been a good letter for us, one that we can lean in, one that we can remember, one that we can fall back upon pray as we finish up this letter this morning, God, it's still your word, even though it's the end, even though there's all these names that we don't know, and there's just this kind of the ending of a letter, Father, it's still your word, and it's still fruitful, it's still beneficial for us. So I pray that you would soften our hearts, encourage us where we need encouragement, convict us where we need conviction, help us to grow in you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Chapter 12, or verse 12. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So this is Peter wrapping everything up, saying, now this is how uh, this is supposed to go out. So, so we talked about this letter being twofold, right? The, the, the plan, it, or Peter talks about the letter being twofold. There's two things he says here that's important for us. He says, I, I wrote this letter to encourage you, and I wrote this letter to continually testify. So all of these things are going to happen. Be encouraged, testify what's happening, and to stand firm that this is the true grace of of God. Maybe you don't, uh, you've not seen the word Sylvanus before. That's Silas, if you've read Silas in the book of Acts. It's a companion who's very close-knit with Paul. And so what Peter's doing is throughout this whole letter, there's been this undergirding of the grace of God that he's been just kind of not ever really brought it to the forefront, but it's been the motivation behind this whole letter. So how do we have a living hope, which is one of the huge themes in First Peter? We have it by the grace of God. Well, how do we live holy lives like Peter would call us to live? 
Well, only by the grace of God. How can we do good through the grace of God? There's no other way. How can we live in submission as gospel lights in our, with our rights as citizens and in our careers and with our spouses? It's only by the grace of God. So, so when we suffer, when, when things don't go the way we want them to go, when we're in pain and there doesn't seem to be an end to the pain, when we've done nothing wrong yet we still find ourselves in the pit of despair, struggling, how can we keep going then? And Peter will say, by the grace of God and God alone. That's what we stand firm in, is the true grace of God. But also what Peter tells us in this little section, right? This is just tiny. This is the throwaway line at the end of the book of 1 Peter. Is we stand on the grace of God, but we do not stand alone. He's got Silas with him. He's got all of these others that he's he's listed. Mark, these brothers with him that, that he stands together. So we humble ourselves, we put aside our preferences for the gospel, we, we raise concerns in a loving way if there's concerns, but, but they're not preferences, and then this is the true grace of God. This is a huge point for Peter. And in fact, in verse 10, Peter has already talked about the grace of God just a little bit. If you read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, Then the God of all grace, right, not some, all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, talks about grace about as much as anybody else does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. When Paul writes to Titus in that short letter, which we've gone through, Paul says this about grace in Titus two eleven: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the question we have to ask, because I think most of us in this part of the world are believers and we've heard the word grace, but I don't know if we've ever sat down and defined and talked about what grace is and what grace is not. And it's vital for Christians to be able to understand this. So let's unpack it. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, the active outworking of that unmerited favor of God in the life of the church and in individual believers. So grace cannot be earned. To earn grace is called justice. It cannot be earned. It must be received. And grace is connected to our sinfulness. We don't think about this often, right? God is gracious without us, but we don't experience God's grace until the fall. Grace is God's response to our sin. Because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellious hearts, we deserve the wrath and the judgment of God, yet instead God sends his grace to us. A loving God, all-powerful, created everything that is, and in this creation he specifically and intentionally created human beings to be made in his image. Nothing else that was created was created in the image of God, yet us, as these image bearers of God, are the ones who rebel. Essentially, we look at God and we say, you don't get to be the king of my life. I'm going to be the king of my life. You don't get to rule me. I'm going to rule me. I'm going to do what I want. I know better than what you know. And so we sin and we rebel against God. Yet, for some reason that's hard to grasp, instead of God just wiping us out completely and saying, just get out of here with that nonsense, God shows us his love. God shows us his grace. 
God shows us that he desires to bring us as these rebellious creatures back into communion, back into fellowship, back into a relationship with him. However, he's holy. And his holiness cannot simply allow sin to pass without response. If God allows our unholy rejection of him to stand, then he's contradicting his nature. He's not holy. He is holy, which means he can't allow sin to stand. So we, I won't say which child it was because I don't want to embarrass her. We had a, one of our kids was in pull-ups. And so what they do is, is every night when they'd get up, they'd take their pull-up off, they'd put their panties on, and we assumed they were throwing their pull-ups away. <laughs> this was a dangerous assumption we learned in hindsight. <laughs> one day Morgan was cleaning their room and she opened. I, I had this little hutch given to me. I don't know what you call it. It's just like a little deal somebody made. And it's got bin carved on the top and then like crowns and markers and books and all those things. Well, we had stuck it in the girl's closet, and Morgan would smell something, and she went and she opened it, and what she found was just pull-ups from months had been shoved in there. Mold, like some of them had come alive. It was weird what was happening with this thing. It was disgusting. The point being, we can't just take things, our sin. God can't just take our sin and pretend like it doesn't exist and store it in a cupboard. It must be atoned for. It must be dealt with. It can't just be swept under a rug and pretended like it didn't happen. So then how can God bring this rebellious creation back into fellowship with him? By grace. Right? It's, it's on God's part. You understand? Like grace is, is God's action motivated by his love, shaped by his holiness, and taking into account the seriousness of our sins, yet bringing the sinner back into a relationship with him. It all is wrapped up in this idea of grace. Grace is connected to God's being. It's connected to God's actions, and especially God's actions in Christ. So therefore, grace is costly. It's not cheap. And it's not to be treated lightly. I want to read just a short passage, just a couple of deals. This is a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody seen the movie Valkyrie? I know that's a hard shift. Valkyrie was a group of guys who tried to assassinate Hitler, and they failed, and they were all killed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in real life, that's how he was killed. Uh, he was in Germany. He was a believer in Germany. The Nazis came through. He refused to leave, and instead he stayed put in Germany, proclaiming the gospel. He's a Lutheran, so we don't, you know, everything's not all right, but a lot of the stuff that he says is really good. He says this about grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns him, condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to dear uh, a, a price to pay for our life, but to deliver him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God's word. So cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. What Bonhoeffer's saying there and what we need to understand is we, this idea we have of grace that's just kind of God flowering things on us and it doesn't hurt him is not true. 
that the grace of God is free, but it's expensive. That it's to be received, but it cost Jesus his life. And in reality, to receive grace means it costs you and our lives as well. When we become believers, when we repent and we turn to Jesus, we're saying we're taking this grace from God, we're, we're owning it as our own, that God's going to wash over us, He's going to cleanse us, He's going to make us more and more holy, right? We're not instantly that way, but we're sanctified through our life, we're justified in God's eyes, sanctified for the rest of our life, and in a very real way, it means that we give up our own preferences. We die to ourselves and we live to Christ. Grace is not cheap. See, in the Old Testament, it's God who established and regulates the sacrificial system. It's not just Moses going, okay, here's what I think we should do. Nobody likes lambs. Let's just get all these lambs together. Boom. God takes the initiative. He reveals how these fallen, sinful humans can relate to him, and it always comes at a cost. He establishes the content. He establishes the terms. And the results of the sacrifices uh, work because wrath needs to be satisfied in a particular way. So don't be deceived. This is not us working our way up and reaching to God. This is God reaching down to us. Giving us his unmerited favor, his, his grace. He has established by grace the sacrifices which satisfy his justice. He has proved, the, he's provided the solution to the sin problem. Right? We're, we're rural, so we understand life and death probably more than, than other people around us. But I don't think we fully grasp the ramifications for the sacrificial system that God brought. So in Passover, right, last week was Holy Week, in Passover uh, at Jerusalem, there'd be somewhere around 2 million people that would show up in Jerusalem, each with a little lamb in tow. And those lambs would be taken to the temple, and they would be slaughtered, which means, like, there's not indoor plumbing. That blood's going somewhere. It's running down the streets. It would stink. It would smell, which is to remind us of that's what our sin does. Like, it's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to think about what that would look like, what that would feel like, how that would... I mean, you just see things. It's one thing to understand the doctrinal significance of sacrifice. It's another thing to witness it firsthand. Sin is violent. It's lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response to our sinful rebellion. This is where we, we misunderstand grace far too often. Our problem as fallen humanity is not that we need to be fulfilled more in ourselves. Our problem is not that we lack personal affirmation. Our problem is not that we need just a little bit of help for God to kind of get us over the hump. Our problem is that we are rebels against God, rebels against God at our very core, and we need God to be gracious towards us. See, for some, though, Christianity ends up being a a means to an end. It's something to help us realize our goals. It's something to help us stand out in a community, to look like we're good, moral, upstanding citizens, when in reality, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not self-help therapy dressed up as an orthodox religion. It's about the grace of God. And there's this thing called... Like common grace is, is what it's called, right? Where everybody, every human being within creation, we deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth, but God has common grace on us that he doesn't do it right now. Amen? Like, praise the Lord. 
But we're talking about this special grace that God gives to us through the revealing of his word, through the cross of Jesus Christ, this unmerited favor that solves sin's problems. Listen to, we read this at Christmas a lot. Listen to Isaiah 53, uh, or we'll read it at Easter. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, and but we in turn regard him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wombs. We all went astray like sheep. We've turned to our own ways, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So in Isaiah 53, the he there is the suffering servant, and what Jesus says is, I am the suffering servant. We see the culmination of all of God's acts. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice, in the New Testament, all of these things come together, and they focus on this, this servant who bears our griefs, who bears our sorrows. It is all brought about by sin. He's our peace, even though he's being crushed and, and chastised. Our, our sin and our transgressions have been laid on him so that we don't have to bear the consequences for our sins ourselves. See, what Isaiah is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, what the New Testament is telling us is we need this grace, but we need this atonement. And the only way that we can get this atonement is if Jesus comes and dies in our place. This is not a response to how good we are and how well we've performed. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This is how God responds to our sinful rebellion. God's graciousness finds its fulfillment in the work of this suffering servant, in the work of Jesus. And so Jesus is the supreme manifestation of God's grace throughout all of history. I mean, you can look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and learn about Jesus' earthly life, and you can see that Jesus purchased this grace at a cost to which we, like, we can't, we understand Jesus bought our grace, like he, he purchased our, our wrath from God, but, but it's not something that we could ever repay. It's something we can only marvel that Jesus would pay that amount, that he would work for that for us. Hebrews 4, 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Grace is not cheap and it is not weak. The grace of God is not simply the fact that God set forth his own son to be a sacrifice. Although that's amazing in and of itself, it is the incarnate God even now continues to intercede for us. He continues to accept Christ's sacrifice so we don't continually sacrifice So so grace is the unmerited favor of God, then the advent of the Son of God, the the birth of Jesus uh, at Christmas time, right? That's when we celebrate that in human flesh is the greatest act of God's grace and the fulfillment of God's gracious acts. So we're saved by grace. God's free favor revealed, accomplished in Christ, not by any action that we take in ourselves, but in simply receiving the grace of God. Romans eleven six, Paul says this, Now if by grace, then is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. Galatians 5, 4, You who are trying to be justified by the law are now alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Grace is not God giving us some wholesome advice. Right? He's not the grandpa sitting upstairs that if we visit him and he's in his rocking chair, he'll tell us a few things, give us some Werther's butterscotch, and then send us on our way. 
And grace is not a helping hand. Grace is God raising someone from the dead. First Christ and then those who are in Christ. And grace can only be received by faith. This is uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, has an illustration I've, I think I've used before, but it's helped me tremendously in my own life. I'll just read it to you. Faith occupies the position of a channel or a conduit pipe. Grace is the fountain in the stream, and faith is the aqueduct, uh, uh, <laughs> aqueduct along which the flood of mercy flows to refresh thirsty sons of men. So what, what, what Spurgeon's saying is, Faith is the pipe, and grace is the water. So if you turn your water faucet on, water's what comes out. But it gets there, it's received by faith. So then what this means is, a mere pep talk doesn't do our souls any good. A little bit of life coaching doesn't get us to where we need to be. What we need is a resurrection, and that comes from outside of us. That doesn't come from within God and the person of the Holy Spirit unites individuals to Christ by faith in his word as it's proclaimed. And this is his action. It's, it's not a team effort between us and God. It's God saying, I'll save you. I'll resurrect your dead soul. Romans 8, 10 through 11. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But, uh, uh, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raises Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. God regenerates dead, sinful, dead human beings. Like our right, not physically, but our souls are dead in Christ. And he regenerates us through his word. All throughout the Bible, we see where the word of God goes out, life begins. How does God create in Genesis 1? He speaks, and life begins. How does God create in Genesis 2 when he's forming Adam? He forms him out of the dirt, and then what does he do? Breathes into Adam. When God speaks, when the word of God speaks, life begins. So those who have received grace through faith in Christ, his grace towards them changes them, right? It changes us. If we're believers in Jesus and we've received his grace, you cannot stay stagnant. Because now the word of God is living and it's saving them. And so we're, we, we become different people. We have different motivations. Do you know most of the time in Paul's letters, he begins simply with saying something like grace and peace to you. And then he ends with like almost the same thing. Almost all of his letters are sandwiched this way. Grace and peace to you, even if he's mad at them. Right? You can read Galatians and Corinthians. He'll be super mad, but he's going to start with grace and peace to you. And he's just going to rip into him. And then at the very end, he'll be like, hey, go out in grace and peace. He doesn't just say that as just a cool kind of Christian cliche line to throw at the end of an email. He's saying something that matters. Grace is not a license to do as we please. Grace involves sacrifice, and it's violent, and it's bloody, and grace is powerful, and it's overwhelming, and it's transformative, and it shatters our notions of autonomy, and it heals our deepest wounds, and it meets the deepest longings of our human hearts. It's not just something that we get grace and I can live however I want because I've got this get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what grace is. What, What Paul says, what Peter says, is grace and gospel are synonymous. They're both the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has come and you can have grace. So Peter's saying in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of everything that's happening to these people, and in the midst of everything that's going to happen to all Christians after this, 
that he wants to testify to us in a way that's going to encourage us. In a way that's going to help us find a way, not just around struggles, but through them for the grace and the glory of God. And what Peter says to do is cling to the cross, no matter what kind of hurricane of sins, hurricane of struggles blows through your life. And I love that Peter makes sure that we are not alone. Verse 13, right, he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings to you as Mark does my as uh, sends greetings as does mark my son this is a weird way to end this but she who is in babylon what peter is saying is babylon like as the old testament big rival had long gone by now what peter's saying is that he's at rome and the she that he's talking about is the church at rome so he's saying all of us believers here in rome we're going through the same sufferings we're here with you we're going to stand firm in this grace we're going to stand firm in this gospel we're going to continue encouraging you you continue encouraging us in the midst of all of this life we're going to stand together we've seen sylvanius we've seen him mention mark paul's going through this together christianity is not meant to be uh, done alone you can't be a church by yourself We gather together as a body of believers. We rub shoulders with one another. We get annoyed with one another by the grace of God to grow us and to shape us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. This also means that other churches aren't our enemies. Right? Orthodox evangelical churches are not our enemies. Right? So as much like, you know... I have a, a great relationship with Rocky. Rocky and I like don't argue. We don't fight because we're not enemies. And he's better looking than me, and I don't want to get into that. He probably could beat me up. The reality, Luke tells us this in Luke 10 too, uh, there's plenty of lost people around. You don't need to worry about fighting brothers and sisters in Christ. The enemy is not other churches. The enemy is not other believers. The enemy is... Satan, who wanders around like a lion trying to destroy us. It's our world that's sinfully broken and and has issues with it. And it's our own human flesh. Those are what we wage war against. We cooperate with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Peter finishes in verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. That's a command. Greet. I think we can all agree the kiss of love is descriptive of what they were doing. It's not prescriptive of what we should do. Right? <laughs> we get sick enough at our house. I'm not getting close to some of you. It was their cultural way of giving a hug. It was their cultural way of shaking hands. It was their cultural way of embracing one another in kind of a warm fellowship. That's what Peter's saying. He's not just saying, say hello to somebody as you pass them down the street. He's saying, greet them as a brother and sister in Christ, as somebody that you want to be around, as somebody that you care for, somebody that you've prayed for, somebody that you know has prayed for you, as somebody who you have their best interest in mind and they have your best interest too. You greet them. And I think it's really interesting how Peter ends this letter. He does not say peace to all. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Because the reality is there is no peace outside of Christ. You may have moments, you may have flickers of hope. There may be things that can give you some sort of peace, but it's always fading. And it always means you have to go get more of it later. The only true peace happens in Christ Jesus.
So as I finish this letter, I think it's appropriate for us to say, if you're a believer here, if you know Jesus Christ, if he's your Savior, like grace is the starting line, it's not the finish line. Our salvation's the starting line, it's not the finish line, right? We don't just go get saved, whoo, and then go live our lives doing whatever else we want to. It's the starting line for our lives. And so the grace that saves us is the same grace that empowers us. But Peter says that Christ himself will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. All of those are in the future. All of those takes place later. So we continue the battle. We continue to stand firm on the grace of God. This will be attacked. There will be enemies that will come through and try to distort what grace means and what doesn't mean. It always happens. It's always this way. That's why Peter tells you, stand firm in it and don't move. Paul says the same thing, right? You know the, uh, the, the armor of God in Ephesians? You put on all this armor of God, and you know what Paul tells you to do with the armor of God? Attack! Beat the devil up! No. You know what he says? Stand firm. We're not the saviors. We're the recipients of grace if we're believers in Jesus Christ. Our role is to put on the armor and to stand firm in the gospel so that other people who are struggling, other people who are believers can stand firm next to us and we can encourage one another. People who are lost and struggling and fighting the fight and can't seem to get a grasp can see us standing firm on the word of God and want what we have. That's the way the gospel works. So believers... Stand firm. For any unbelievers who are here, this will not make sense to you. Grace will not make sense to you. It will make no sense to you that a sheep has to be killed so that you can live. But my prayer is that there's something in God's message, there's something in these words that's stirring up your heart and stirring up your soul. My prayer for you is that it would be a restless Easter that you're going to turn on the masters and you want to take a nap, but instead you just can't. The Holy Spirit will begin working in you. He would show you your sin. And he would show you that he'll handle it and he'll deal with it. If you'll receive grace, if you'll repent and turn to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I do thank you for Easter. I do thank you that even in the midst of a society that feels like it's going more and more away from you, there's still holidays, there's still dates on the calendar that seem to be dates where you're important or you matter. God, I pray that you would encourage us in that. God, I pray for the believers who are here that this would be a letter, God, that we would read First Peter and it would be an encouragement to our hearts. It would be an encouragement to our souls to know that whatever the world throws at us, you've got us covered that there's grace there and that there's mercy there. And God, for unbelievers, I pray that you would help them to see the hope, to see the joy, to see the peace that is in the gospel. The peace that comes from your grace that cannot be earned but only received. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Daryl and Tina are going to lead us in a hymn.